Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. I'm now in conversation for The Bigger Picture with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. There really is only one subject to talk about, and that is Ukraine. We are uh, recording this conversation on the eighth day of the invasion, and I know people listen to the podcast several days after they're recorded, so obviously some of what we discuss may very rapidly go out of date but we can only talk about things as they are now mike so where on earth should we should we start last time we talked we were discussing the likelihood or not of putin actually invading um well now we know it's a a, a reality i think what you said there simon sums up how time can make fools of us all in a way and if we a fortnight ago there was a great deal of speculation about whether or not russia would actually invade um, Ukraine and opinions certainly seem split between th- those people who were perhaps more informed international commentators who thought this was a, a very high stakes diplomatic gambit and those people who looked at the 100,000 troops on the borders of Ukraine and thought that th- th- an invasion was intended. The truth is probably somewhere in between, as it were. As we stand on the eighth day of the invasion, um, there has been, I think, considerable resistance from the Ukrainians, ample resistance from the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian people. A million refugees have fled the country since Russian forces started invading from the north and the east. Primarily at the moment, they are seeking to cut off Ukraine's access to the coast. Uh, building on the annexation of Crimea and seeking to build a corridor Mm. to the annexed regions that Russia claims in the northeast of the country as well. Russian troops are moving, have been moving over the last week to encircle the capital city of Kiev. At this point in time, Kiev still remains in uh, Russian hands. Russian troops are also in Ukraine's second city of Kherson and there have been, I think, even Russia was forced to admit that it has suffered in its words hundreds of casualties. That number is probably far higher. There's also, we don't yet know the number of Ukrainians, uh, both their soldiers and of um, citizens who've lost their lives. Mm. But I think this is an act that has shocked the world. It has generated, I think, and it's something we should probably talk about later on, is how this has affected Europe and also arguably America's outlook on the world as well. But the situation on the ground at the moment is an evolving one. It's a complex one as well. What has happened, though, is that there is a clear consensus that the the, the Russians are facing stiffer resistance than they anticipated. Mm. That Vladimir Putin has uh, this is this is not a, a gamble of a man who is in a strong position, someone who is confident and believes that an easy victory would be achieved. There have been noticeable rifts opening up at the top of the Russian military and intense. Uh, intelligence architecture and equally there's this 
rather extraordinary story that people have been looking at Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky, a man who came to office three years ago, most famous before that for playing a president Mm -hmm. in a Ukrainian political drama. My favourite fact about President Zelensky is that he is the he's the voice in the Ukrainian dub of Paddington Bear Mm, as well. And so this this figure who is being contrasted to Vladimir Putin by certainly Western media at every available opportunity as well. And another element we should probably touch on is is the is the is the Western response as well, not just the unity, but also the, uh, the the tools of which we use and this isn't just a case of um whether or not we send troops or not but it, it is it is a arguably the most serious conflict to emerge in europe since certainly since the balkans war and uh, some people it may it may prove to be the most serious invasion of a european country since 1945. what do you think putin was hoping to achieve do you think he believes his own rhetoric do you think he expected the ukrainian people suddenly to embrace the Russian troops with open arms? Or was that simply propaganda for the Russian people? I think there's always a certain degree of um, the longer anyone is in power, particularly in an authoritarian regime that does not countenance dissent. And we even see this in democratic countries when leaders are in office, they become convinced of a certain point of view of what they're doing. Putin's entire modus operandi has been about projecting strong Russian influence, particularly over areas it sees to be. Um, I, I believe he honestly thinks that Ukraine should be within the sphere of Russia's influence. I believe he honestly is paranoid about the the, the NATO alliance and the threat it may pose. And, and Ukraine wanting to join NATO is undoubtedly a, a trigger for wanting him to invade as well. But there's also a certain element, I think, here of playing to the, as, 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 as often a lot of wars are, they're often more about playing to the domestic audience than they are about the reality on the ground as well. So if we think back to, say, the most prominent invasion uh, probably before this in our time that involved the UK was the, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. They were undertaken very much as a result of the attacks on 9-11. These weren't orchestrated by the Afghani nations. They were but by terrorists that were... Um, sheltered by the Afghan people and then Iraq came about by some convoluted association to do with that as well. The protests on the streets of Russian cities against the war I think have shown that there is by no means a consensus for what Vladimir Putin has done and the simple fact that Russian troops have reportedly lacked basic logistics, that there have been reports of their vehicles running out of fuel that many of these troops honestly believed they were going, as, as their government said, on military exercises. There was a text message that was read out by uh, a Ukrainian uh, ambassador at the United Nations from a Russian soldier to his mother, a 19-year-old, saying, I, I'm i now frightened, I'm at war. And this is not the mighty Soviet Union it once was. Russia's economy has shrunk considerably. It is a comparatively underpopulated country if you bear in mind the population of america is 500 million the population of russia is about 150 million people even though it's the largest country on earth russia's influence over the west has largely come from its oil and gas reserves which are a dwindling resource and the russian economy is in a far worse state than it was when the soviet union was the alternative superpower to the united states in the late latter half of the 20th century what there is though 
is imbuing Vladimir Putin a the the sense that Russia must be great, Russia must be strong, and that's arguably pervaded Russian history and politics as far back as the as Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, those figures that because of its position, Russia's always had to have a a bearish outlook on the world and. That again is something that's informed the, the reasons are, are too many and complex to go into at the moment. But I think this is a war that has arguably started partly due to an outdated outlook of Vladimir Putin, but also I think a high stakes gamble gone wrong as well by him. Yeah, the, the morning we recorded, the an EU official was quoted as saying they're picking up um, um, speculation that Russia may be imposing on the point of imposing martial law on its own citizens. Um, seems slightly extraordinary considering that they're the ones who invaded Ukraine. But we have to ask, do you feel that Putin is completely rational? You talked about how isolated he has become. I mean, we've only got to think back a few weeks to that extraordinary sort of scene of, of he and uh, Macron at opposite ends of this extraordinarily long table. And it appears that he's not having very close communication with, or not, not at close quarters, but with anybody, but his very, very closest advisors. But I mean, is this just, you know, Western speculation or do you think that Putin has ceased to be the rational and quite canny politician that he was once held to be? I think anybody's talents in office diminishes over time and uh, any any long serving political leader is always going to have a diminishment of their abilities the longer they're doing the job for as well, because politics is an unusually stressful in many ways they become more experienced but i think also and this is a reflection that is true of everyone from u.s presidents to british prime ministers as well i mean there's it's commonly said of margaret thatcher that she lost her ability to read the public mood and to mm. understand the people who elected her and that would argue what brought about her downfall look at the poll tax look at the inflexibility over things like europe and vladimir putin's um stay of power in Russia, his tenure in charge has been remarkable. There is no other world leader in a, in a senior country at the moment, now that Angela Merkel has left the stage, that can match him in terms of political experience at the top. I mean, if you just look at the sort of the leading contemporaries, the, the longest serving political leader he's probably been engaging with at the moment is Emmanuel Macron. Olaf Scholz has just become Chancellor of Germany. Boris Johnson, although he's been foreign secretary, has only been prime minister of the UK for three years. Joe Biden, although former vice president, is, is, is a figure it hasn't been president before. Now he's also someone who's very much at the end of his political career as well, not, not in contrast to the Barack Obama, who was pursuing a reset of um, relationships. So Putin is arguably an isolated figure in the sense that he has seen five British prime ministers, quite a few US presidents go through. One of the things I think it's always, always think it's dangerous to speculate about and a leader's individual faculties. But I think if we it, one instructive episode was seeing an intelligence briefing uh, broadcast on television with Putin seated, Tsar like as he was, with the head of the intelligence services in question and Putin questioning him testily about this on television. And, and this to me projects an image of a leader who's the people around him, his generals, his officials, probably don't entirely believe in the direction he's going in as well. The question is, though, does his hold on the security apparatus, do the large numbers of people who, particularly outside metropolitan areas of Russia, in the and towards the west of the country as well, especially, 
do they still, sorry, the east of the country, do they still believe that he is the man who can make Russia strong, make Russia great? That's a particularly potent brand. He's been around for a while now. He, he knows how to pull the levers. But inevitably, everybody at some point runs out of rope. And it's too early to say, but I'm going to go back to that famous Winston Churchill quote, this might be the end of the beginning for Vladimir Putin. This, this is probably, it's hard to see how he recovers from this, given the, if, if the war is botched, if it's another Afghanistan type thing, for, like, like it was for the USSR, mm. that would damage Russia's prestige considerably, because this isn't just annexing, this isn't just the invasion of Georgia or annexing Crimea. They are trying to take on a country that now has uh, is considerable backing from not just economically, but also militarily in terms of supplies it's getting. And we're going to, we'll talk about the response across Europe as well, mm. but it hasn't, it's only, they've only really got Alexander Lukashenko, the discredited president of Belarus in their corner with them. And even China are apparently persuading Russia to sue for peace. So this war, although the formal invasion may end up in a messy compromise, a protracted insurgency against Putin is arguably the last thing he wants. What he did not get is, is what he expected, which is that easy rollover to Kiev. Yes. Zelensky throwing down his metaphorical, um, his metaphorical uh, mantle of power. This is not as easy as Russia thought it was going to be, and that ultimately will damage Putin. Uh, Mike, uh, time for us to take a brief pause for breath, and then we will look at the, the, the West response and what it means for the West. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, and we are, of course, discussing um, Ukraine. Mike, as you hinted earlier, we ought to look really at the response to the West. I mean, perhaps one might argue a little too feeble in advance um, because we are so closely dependent upon Russia and indeed Ukraine. Um, for so many of the things that are important to us. I mean, we we had a fuel crisis over the, the winter. That has not gone away. It's been exacerbated by what's happened. I mean, uh, Western Europe in particular, and especially big countries like Germany, are just so dependent on Russian um, gas, particularly. I mean, there's been a massive sea change, perhaps more than any other country in, in West Germany, which was had a very feeble response to Putin's military buildup beforehand. I mean, that offer of providing helmets um, to Ukraine. But now, of course, things have changed massively in Germany. So I don't know where you want to start with looking at what it means for the West, taking an overall picture or looking at Germany first and then spreading well, out. I, I think we have to we have to start with Germany because there was a time, I think, in, in history, bear, bearing in mind that we, we have seen over the last 10 years or so, certainly, uh, particularly the last five years or so, five or six years with the presidency of Donald Trump and the UK's departure from the EU, a straining of the multilateral ties that have kept Western nations together and 
Boris Johnson's government has tried to ride this awkward horse of both leaving the European Union, but also remaining part of NATO as well. And this has been a big test of British foreign policy, and we can touch on that as well. But these institutions fundamentally came about, NATO came about on the back of, and the UK of a desire to promote European peace. And at a time when Germany announces a massive increase in defence spending, it shows how, how successful and how enduring these institutions are in the sense that the, the fact that German rearmament is now seen, crudely speaking, is seen as a good thing. You know, if, if we were going back, you know, 100 years or so to the 1920s, to the, um, they weren't allowed to do that. If in 1930s, Germany was rearming, it was seen as the expansionist power. So the lessons around peace in Europe are deeply embedded and learned by these institutions. And to be honest, a lot of people, I think, you know, there was those, I think, the, the, the headlines in the British press, war in Europe. So for Olaf Scholz to commit to spending that 2% on GDP, I think it's arguably reinvigorated NATO somewhat. There have been, uh, obviously not just Ukraine seeking to join, there was a, there's, there's also um, a stronger desire for these countries that have, I think, governments that aspire to be or are democratic in Russia's orbit. They want to look west now for their support and it's incumbent upon the major powers of Western Europe, the European Union as well, Britain too, although for us it's a little more awkward at this point because it's very much, this is showing a trend running very much the other way to where we're going, and America, to show that they support multilateralism, collective security. What we're not advocating is an East versus West block here, but without that counterbalance, effectively what you're saying to these countries is you're effectively leaving them to the mercy of a not a failing Russian state, but one in which is prone to dangerous expansionist tendencies yes. and is more than ever at the whims of a, of a leader whose position is governed increasingly by paranoia and insecurity. Do you feel we're returning to the days of the, of, of the Cold War, maybe slightly different in complexion, but it does feel as if, you know, we have all these years in which we, we were able to reduce military spending because it was felt it simply wasn't needed. Most of the um, uh, defence plans of Britain were just assuming that the war that's been launched in Ukraine would not be something we'd ever have to even contemplate fighting again. It's it's a hard one to say, really, because the uh, I, 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 a friend of mine said something, and I'm sure they won't mind me repeating this, was they said history doesn't repeat, but it echoes. And I, I always I'm always very... Yes mindful of politics that take the lesson that Steve Richards, um, uh, the journal, Westminster journalist says that the past is a very poor guide to the future. We are not going back to the Cold War. There are the dangers of things that Cold War reign. Russia is the nuclear power, for example, and it still has one of the largest stockpiles of nuclear weapons in the world. What I think it has shown is that the the relevance of institutions like NATO and the European Union, and I say the European Union as well as NATO as well, because the, I think the two are intrinsically linked, more so than the UK government would like to admit, and somebody who I've felt a great deal of frustration and perhaps um, perhaps anger as well at seeing how the fact that you know, we've been invited to a special uh, mission of the uh, a meeting of the European Council. So effectively to, to discuss this, but we, that we're not in the room on this. We're not actually able to, um, we're not actually able to, to contribute in the same mm. way that we're missing from a key forum. And 
and the message that has sent, I think, to countries like Russia, to countries like China, to, to people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, that the interest of individual nations and authoritarian strongman tactics. And don't forget, a lot of the language in this from the UK uh, government has, has not gone as far as Putin's, but it has, it has been in the same ballpark. And the Louis Theroux documentary on the BBC a few weeks about the rise of the far right in America, we had a US president who inspired that, whose rhetoric was very much grounded in admiration for authoritarian figures mm-hmm. like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin as well. And I think it's a reminder that democracy and, and the freedoms we all enjoy, and I think freedoms that should be enjoyed all over the world, are valued by people. But we in Western nations shouldn't turn our back on them. And I think the this is one of the things where if we're trying to do a coordinated international response, things like the withdrawal from Afghanistan last year, Operation Pitten, the US is increasingly isolation spent under Obama, Trump, Biden, and the UK's departure from the EU, all send a message to leaders like Putin that we don't want to be on the field to defend our values. And this yes. is... And, but if there's an appetite, if there's if, if countries wish to join the EU, like Georgia has applied for membership, uh, so has Ukraine. If countries wish to be part of NATO, then how can we turn them away? How? What is the alternative if we are not on the field? Yes, except of course, I suppose that Putin would see such actions as actually being. I mean, however ridiculous it seems to us, he would see such actions as being aggressive. Yes, and I think the important thing to say about. Um, this is that there is no, there, there is a fine balance here. One of the things I'm not saying is we should declare war on Russia. There is a fine balancing act to be done here as well. But there is, there is, a, there is a certain thing I would argue of death by a thousand cuts as well. And the, there was a big debate going on with people I know the other week about to what extent the invasion of Ukraine was a turning point. And I think you can argue that there's a, there's a continuum here stretching all the way arguably the end of the cold war because in that decade and all the way up until afghanistan we were prepared to go in and i think militarily and defend democratic values you look at sierra leone you look at kosovo you look at afghanistan and then you had iraq and that whole episode of sort of interventionism was largely discredited i mean don't forget that tony blair was afraid to make him persuade bill clinton to do the no-fly zone now what we can't do is simply sit back and pull up the drawbridge. And I think I think there are many other questions, particularly for the British government to answer, particularly here in London, where there is a lot of Russian money flowing around. There is a lot of people who have ties to the Kremlin. Mm. And there's a lot of money that is rinsed through the city of London as well. And there are other levers we can use as well. But ultimately, these values, I would say, are not going to be preserved unless we are prepared to protect them. And I think that means standing up for them in whatever way. Uh, Vladimir Putin cannot wage war on the entire world. He's proven that he can struggle to, he struggles to even invade Ukraine. But it's incrementalism, I would say, Simon. And I think the message that have been coming out of Western governments uh, the last few years is that a lot of them are increasingly content to pull up the drawbridge and to leave leave the world outside of their borders and i think the uk and the us are particularly guilty of this to get on with it and full credit to emmanuel macron yes he is facing an election year but he has really spearheaded europe's response as well but he will only be successful in that if all the other nations of western europe 
who profess to be democracies stand alongside them, and that includes Britain. And the fact that we're not in the same room as our EU allies does create another potential divide that can be exploited by people like Vladimir Putin, who clearly wish democratic values and freedoms a great deal of harm. Given how disunited um, Western nations, including supposed allies, were before the invasion, I, I suppose I've been quite impressed by just how much has been um, done in a relatively short space of time. But you talked about London there and how friendly um, the UK is to uh, some of the oligarchs who are friendly with with Putin. Um, presumably, then I get the impression that you think even more can be done than has been done already. Clearly, the sanctions within just a week are having quite a significant effect on ordinary Russians. Um, I mean, I doubt very much we can influence Putin, but one has to hope that somehow he will actually realise if he's not taking the Russian people with him, that that's actually quite dangerous for him. Yes, and I think all leaders in any country governed by some form of consent, whether or not it's consent obtained at the barrel of a gun, whether it's consent obtained at the ballot box, whether or not it is a... um, Whether or not it is a... A country that relies on some mixture of the two and it's you know i would never say that we as a country should be complacent about the freedoms we enjoy and the, there there have been a few episodes that have happened in the last few years where i think particularly the johnson government have flirted with a degree of strong executive control but equally there were there were surveys undertaken in the british public that said that actually they would like a strong leader who would break the rules and that if, if you're looking at for that sort of definition i'd argue don't look, look much further than Vladimir putin in that regard yeah, absolutely someone who yes. would do whatever it takes but yes i mean i know some quite rational people who have admired um, putin until relatively recently i'm quite well, honest myself so what more what more can the uk let's talk specifically about the uk i mean clearly it's been far too friendly for too long for uh, dodgy oligarchs not just putin's but but uh, many around um, Eastern Europe, um, letting them uh, deal in property and shelter assets here, um, indeed use our, our courts too, too freely. Um, are you impressed with what's actually been done so far? Or do you think we really need to go much further? It's hard to say because I think there is this can turn into a witch hunt very quickly. And you just have to look at past conflicts, see that and, and there are thousands, tens of thousands of Russians who make the UK their home, mm. who are just ordinary people living their ordinary lives. What we are talking about here are a select few people who have a great deal of wealth that is obtained, you could say, perhaps uh, through sort of mercen- quite mercenary capitalism during the shift to Russia's market economy in the 1990s. I think that places like the City of London have a great deal of pull as financial and but also investment centres as well. We want the UK to be outward looking and global as well. But we also need to be great, more transparent about where this money comes from, who holds these properties. And there are, of course, issues, particularly with this uh, belief that a lot of Russian oligarchs use the UK's property market as an investment that does affect house prices that there are things I think we can do as well and I don't wish to, to run when I say I believe in an open and you know um, outward looking world I honestly do and I, I want us to you know Russians to be able to come and work here and to be able to enjoy themselves but equally there are the super rich I think in this case can use certain aspects of our country as a haven and, and there, there are issues you know, to say with you know, 
PMQs, which is all about Roman Abramovich, who has suspected links mm. to the Kremlin, something he's always denied. Uh, Eugenie Epdev, the owner of the Evening Standard newspaper as well, who's also a member of the House of Lords. Again, there's nothing, there's no particular claims against these people at the moment, but the Conservative Party in particular has taken large amounts of money from Russian donors as well, uh, Russian oligarchs and donors. And so there is a question here of how this world operates and the degree of transparency. I would say there is no harm in increasing the transparency. So we know first and foremost which assets these individuals, these few individuals hold in this country, where the money comes from, what their links are to political parties abroad. Mm. And this is something the government is trying to do through its economic crime bill at the moment. But equally, we must be aware of a knee-jerk reaction. What we don't want to see is, is something that we've seen so particularly in the, you know, the First and Second World Wars, where there was this horrible backlash against Germans, people from other countries living there. You know, America's great shame of rounding up Japanese people in, into internment camps during the Second World War. We are a far more enlightened outward-looking world mm. now than we are doing so. But that also comes with, I would say, a burden on any government to improve transparency, to ensure that just because somebody has wealth, it doesn't mean they can hide if they have unsavory connections abroad. Mike, thank you very much. Um, I'll be talking to Mike Indian again in a fortnight. Some goodness knows uh, how the situation would have developed by then. But um, for a summation of where things stand at the moment, Mike, I am very grateful. Uh, that's Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, he'll be back with me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.